Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the Decent Garner Law Firm, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hansen. Good morning, Yuma. This is Sean Garner. I'm in studio here with Adam Hansen and Cody Beeson. We're going to be talking this morning about the very controversial topic of uh, gun control and the Second Amendment. So, normally, to have a very good, robust discussion, we'd want to have somebody of, of a opposing view regarding gun control, and, and that would be helpful. Um, unfortunately, all three of us in here in the studio believe that the Second Amendment gives each of us a right to um, keep and bear arms. But uh, I'll try to play devil's advocate a little bit. I don't think I'm a, as much of a gun enthusiast as Cody, per se. I, I would say, Cody, you are very much a gun enthusiast in that you understand and operate them uh, frequently. You, you understand how to take them apart, how to reassemble them. You understand what's legal in California as opposed to what's legal in Arizona. And I have a high respect for people that understand guns at that level because <clears throat> it seems like the people that understand them well really have a high regard for them and respect them and actually use them and keep them quite safe. And we don't see those type of people coming out and, and committing these heinous crimes that has gotten the rest of the nation up in arms about whether or not we should have the right to bear arms and continue to have the Second Amendment um, protect our right to bear arms. So, Adam, what, what would you say your position is on this? And Would you say you're more of the uh, in-between Cody and me, or would you say you're more along the lines of Cody and, and the use and operations and ownership of guns? I think uh, this is a really tough subject, especially when it's been so... Um uh, disseminated in the media and and so they're controlling the narrative for us Americans and and I'm always reluctant to give credence or place my confidence in what I'm hearing from a media source whether that's uh, from the right or from the left I I try to take the information that's being promulgated and then this, uh, try and think on that and then I will come to my own conclusion recognizing that maybe I might not have all the facts. So I think this is coming in the wake of the uh, the Valdi Texas shooting, right, Sean? And so when that first happened last week, we or a couple weeks ago, we, um, we weren't getting all the facts. In fact, some of these facts were, that were coming out being presented as facts were completely off and, and ridiculous. But at the time, the media was just, it didn't matter. It would get something out, and then we'll fix it later, I guess. But that is a really dangerous thing to do, especially when we're relying on good information to come out, especially from trusted media sources. And so I, I, you asked me the question, well, where do I fall on, on gun control? And uh, I think, personally, I'm always skeptical of, of the media and what's presented to me as facts. And I'm also skeptical of the government's ability to manage or to uh, regulate something effectively. And so if we were to, if we're gonna cede more power to our government and say, you know what, AR-15 style rifles, those, those types of rifles really are, are uh, murdering weapons and they should not be, belong in the hands of those that either don't have a license to carry one or are under a certain age. The more we give or cede additional authority or power to our government, 
I I become more uncomfortable with that. That's not to say that what was what happened was wrong, but I think I don't think the answer is more regulation by a government. I think that's what our founders were actually trying to get away from. In fact, as as you well know, Sean, when the British started, or I guess I should go back a little bit, when the revolution started here in our country and our founding fathers were fighting that fight, much of it was curtailed because they didn't have access to arms. In fact, the British uh, establishments that came in and occupied these these little townships, the first thing that they did was they gathered all the rifles and all the guns from the community and they held them in a storehouse. So only the British officers were allowed to have guns. And that, in my opinion, really lengthened the time of the revolution. Had those townships had access to their rifles, they probably probably would have uh, uh, revolted a lot sooner. But they were prevented from doing that because they didn't have access to the same firepower that a tyrannical government had. And, and they had to lay down and, and take that. Yeah, I'm no military strategist, but if I'm going to go in and try to govern a people and, and, and we're going to do it with a hostile takeover style, then the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to disarm the people that we're going to try to overthrow. And that is exactly what the founding fathers, who were the revolutionaries, were trying to protect against. They, were, they had just won this unprecedented war against the greatest superpower on the earth. And they were very, very concerned about having a government and reinstituting, putting back in place what they had just spent a lot of, of their, their fortune, their blood, their, their families, and, and sacrificed everything that they had to try to get out of the system, and that was this tyrannical government. And so the last thing they wanted to do is let one back in and not have the ability to defend themselves against it and uphold their rights as citizens. And so they went about drafting the Constitution, which when I look at the Constitution, I don't look at it as a document that enshrines the federal government or the states with all these powers over their citizens, I see it as quite the opposite. I see it as a document that enshrines the citizens with rights that says governments, state and federal alike, stay away, back off. These rights shall be the citizens' rights. The government can only have the rights that are enumerated and lined out and consented to by the people or the governed. Uh, I saw something, and I don't want to make light of this situation or what happened in Texas, but a few years ago, if you remember in 2018, there was a, a really uh, fatal shooting in Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, and there was a kid that came out of that. He kind of rose to prominence named, named David Hogg, and he continues to be an activist against gun uh, guns, and AR, specifically AR-15 type rifles. And he... There was a, a meme that my wife showed me yesterday that popped up on her Twitter feed, and I laughed out loud when I read it because um, it was really funny. So back in 2019, um, David Hogg wrote in response to then-President Pence's tweet. He said, under this president and this administration, speaking of the Trump administration, remember this is right in the wake of, well, about a year after uh, the that that Florida shooting. And and so President or Vice President Pence 
Pence tweeted, under this president and this administration, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And he has a little American flag um, emoji and an exclamation point on that tweet. And this David Hogg responded back then. He said, remind me, how many AR-15s did Jesus own? And uh, kind of a quick quick quip back at uh, Pre- Vice President Pence. And uh, my wife showed me a meme yesterday, a screenshot of, of a response of a guy who said, had Jesus owned some AR-15s, he wouldn't have been murdered by his government. And I was like, that is a perfect response. <laughs> right. And uh, you, you think the Romans would allow the Jews at that time to have a well-established militia and have arms? Arms doesn't just refer to firearms, right? It could be swords. It could be daggers. It could be catapults. It could be any type of... Um, weapons that they used in, in ancient warfare, and when a country like, or not a country, but an empire like Rome was governing the Jews and the other nations, um, it's not going to want them to be armed, it's not going to want them to be able to rebel against them, and I think that's a great point. What's interesting to me is that a lot of things are different are being floated such as a age restriction on the ownership of an AR-15 type rifle. So if I wanted to go to Sprague's, I think a number that they're floating out there is 21. You got to be at least 21 before you can go through that background check process and buy buy a gun at Sprague, uh, an AR-15 type rifle at Sprague's. I, I don't know if that would have actually helped in this situation. I'm I'm more of, I, and I don't I don't proclaim to say. This is the right solution. This one thing is going to, this is the panacea that fixes all. You know, I don't think that is the issue. I think this issue is extremely complex. And I think there are multiple ways to help curb curb the gun violence in a particular school, uh, specifically mass shootings. And I don't think it's, the answer is one regulation is going to fix all of this by raising the gun uh, ownership law of an AR-15 type rifle to 21. I, I don't know if that's going to actually do anything. And the reason I say that is because if you look at these uh, cities such as Chicago or Philadelphia that are crime-ridden, and there are at least 18 to 20 murders in a given few days in those cities, th- those individuals that are committing those crimes are using all sorts of Weapons that I, I'm willing to bet are not bought through legal channels. They're trafficked guns or they're getting them from sources wherever they can find them. And they're not going to their local gun store, going through a background check to get these guns if you're going to commit a crime. And so you're, what you're saying is, okay, if, if the criminals have the ability to get these things, but the average Joe who's trying to be law-abiding has to go through a gun background check or has to be a certain age in order to have them in his or her possession, then what you're doing is you're limiting my ability to protect myself and my family from uh, an individual that wants to do me harm. And in my opinion, the government doesn't have a right to do that. I have a right under the Constitution to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if I cannot protect my life under the Second Amendment, then I am curbed by my government, and that is unconstitutional in my in my mind. I think this this analysis really is more about uh, mental health than it is about raising or lowering a gun age uh, or ownership of of a particular gun type. I, I think it's more of what happened. And if you look at these mass shootings that we see, 
across the nation. It usually comes down to some sort of mental health issue. In fact, I would say, I would argue every time it comes down to that issue. And if you were to look at this this guy's, this 18-year-old's uh, background, his family life, it was evident that he he had some issues going on and he didn't have a family support system to recognize that or to help him. And he became more and more angry and became more and more down uh, uh, a threat to those around him. Now it's being reported that he had he had killed a lot of different cats and he had like a bag full of cats. He killed his grandmother uh, all before this, this shooting happened. Yeah, the so, grandmother was only half an hour before though. Oh, sorry. So he still had time to cool down. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just saying that there wasn't a lot of time to take into account that particular act and, and counteract what, what the trend of his, his activity was. And I don't think he had, he didn't have, he wasn't one of these shooters that had an objective, a list, let's say, this is first person on my list and then I'm going to hit this place and I'm going to go here. My understanding was he murdered his grandmother, he took off from that scene and then he wrecked not too far from, from the school. And I imagine in his mind, his life was probably over at that point anyway, so he just wanted to create mass destruction. That's what I'm guessing he had in his mind. But he, there is no evidence to show that he had on his radar that school that day. It was just the, the wrong place at the wrong time. And, uh, and then you have the idea that this old school, I mean, there's so many factors. I grew up in a school where, and it's still like this today, if I go to my hometown in southern Arizona the, on the east side of the state, it's a small little school, and it's a cowboy town, and and we often would drive to school, and still do probably. The kids that are there, they usually have a um, a, a rifle in the rack in their trucks in the parking lot. I mean, that's just what we did, and they still do. But this is a campus where I can walk right on the campus. There are no fences other than the football field, but I can walk right on the campus. I can go right into the buildings, um, at least to the classroom doors, without any problem. That's just, it's an older school. And a lot of these schools are like that. And, and this school and this community down, down in Texas was much like that. It didn't have the modern facility infrastructure that we see today. It didn't have the benefit of being a brand new school that's designed in such a way that there's a single point of entry and it just it's just what happened you know and and unfortunately i'm sure they didn't have many protocols that that these newer schools have for example if i go to gila ridge and i'm going to go check out my son for lunch or something like that there is a single point of entry they designed that school in such a way that i cannot get past at least the uh, resource officer at the very beginning of the office, I can't get past him without uh, some reason or or being checked in or writing down my information. There is a He's standing there kind of like a guard, and then I can get into the office, and then I can ask more questions. But I can't get directly into the school without going through a couple levels of security. And that's how most schools are these days. So you've got an infrastructure problem in this particular case, and you've got a, an individual that has mental, mental issues um, that weren't addressed. And I think, I think what many of the pundits that talk about gun control focus on is the weapon, and they're not foca focusing on what's really the more difficult thing to solve, and they don't talk about it because it's very difficult, and that's the social issues that are happening at home, or let's say the disintegration of the family unit. And the disintegration of the family unit, not having a, um, a, 
a dad in the home, not having a mother in the home, or a nucleus of support system in the home where this young man would have been getting the love and the care and the guidance uh, from people around him that he needed to have some self-worth, to recognize that uh, I can make a difference in this world, I can be something, I can do something with my life. That system failed him. And we, as a people, can't do anything about that in the sense that we cannot regulate our way into another family's life and say, hey, you're doing it wrong. You really should not get divorced at this moment. You really should have a dad in the home. You really should um, eat together uh, family dinner at night, every night. You know, that studies show that's going to make a good good person out of your children, uh, have political discussions at the table. I can't go into that family's home and tell them that, nor should I. But the idea that the media promulgates that it's the gun's fault or it's because of this weapon, that was the reason why this happened is, <laughs> to me, that's ludicrous. The reason this happened is because there was a disintegration in that home and that kid did not have the support system he needed. And it went bad. It went really, really bad. I, I think you could use that same line of reasoning for every attack that has occurred. If you want to look at a single impetus as to what has, is causing these, is it a type of gun? Is it a type of gun law? Is it the type of security system that the school has or lacks? I think you go back to the family unit of the individual who caused the crime, and you can see that there's some type of breakdown. We have to take a break. We'll be back. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the Decent Garner Law Firm. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Sean Garner. I'm in studio here with Adam Hansen and Cody Beeson. We are talking about gun control. It's a very controversial topic, and uh, quite honestly, I'm not as impassioned about guns themselves in particular. I don't go out shooting. Um, I don't... Um, my son loves it. He's a, he's a great uh, clay pigeon shooter. In fact, my wife is a great um, clay pigeon shooter. But uh, I go out, and I, they say point and shoot, and I don't get it. I can't hit the clay pigeon. I, if, I'm, if I'm using sights and I'm shooting long distance or if I'm just you know aiming at a particular target that's stationary I can hit it but uh, I can't sh- I can't hit those clay pigeons anyway off topic the topic is how much passion do I have for guns and the answer is not much how much passion do I have for the Constitution a lot um, I feel like th- the people that founded the Constitution or wrote the Constitution and founded our country um, really wanted the people to stay free. They'd worked very, very hard to make the people free. They'd sacrificed everything to allow that to happen. And they wanted to put in place um, a system of government that would allow society to function. However, to keep the federal government specifically at bay and then to also allow state rights to exist, but as a secondary right to the citizens' rights. The citizens' rights were first and foremost, and that's why 
the Bill of Rights was so important. And right off the bat, they started enumerating these rights that shall, should not be infringed upon by the government. And that was First Amendment, you have the right to uh, assemble, the right to free speech, the white right to religion and practice your religion. And then right after that, they've got the Second Amendment. And so you, you look at this Second Amendment and the phrase, well, these are my Second Amendment rights, has kind of become cliche. But you think about that. Second. That means it was right up there on the top of the list of priorities for these founding fathers in order to ensure that the people remained free. And so to understand the Second Amendment, we should read it. We should see what it says. So this is what it says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's really simple. I'm going to read it one more time. This is it. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, you get into that, what does that mean? Does it mean that uh, there's a right for the states to have a well-regulated militia, therefore they have the rights to control the guns and to disseminate those guns among their population, to fight against infringement on the state rights from the federal government? That's one interpretation. In fact, that's, that is the prominent interpretation by most um, gun control advocates. And uh, others would say, no, it's, it's the individual's right to bear arms as well as the state's rights to maintain um, a militia. Well, here's the thing. There was a court case um, back in the 60s, and the thing about the Second Amendment was there was not a whole lot of court cases about it for the first couple hundred years of the Constitution. And, well, I'd say 170 years of the Constitution. And then... Um, in the 60s, there, you know, let me back up. Back um, in the 20s, when prohibition was implemented, what happened was there was a lot of bootlegging and there was a lot of people that were transporting alcohol and liquor across state borders and they were using shot-off, sawed-off shotguns to protect themselves against other crime outfits and also against law enforcement, and not protect themselves against law enforcement, but actually to continue to uh, abuse the laws and shoot law enforcement with these sawed-off shotguns that were hard to detect, but they were incredibly lethal. And so that's when the court first got involved and said, hey, there is no Second Amendment right for a sawed-off shotgun. So that was the first real seminal case that started to restrict individuals' rights to bear arms. Um, then there were other cases that state that certain assault rifles were not within the constitutional protected provision. And I don't know the real answer. I don't know what the Founding Fathers were thinking. I don't, because they didn't have assault rifles back then. They certainly had sawed-off shotguns. So shotguns existed back then. They called them scatterguns, right, back then. And uh, I'm sure some people sawed them off to make them easier to, to um, take here and there and, and store. But um, the question is, is it about um, the economy of the gun? Is it about the destructiveness of the gun? Is it about how portable it is? Or is it about the people's rights to defend themselves against um, 
a government who is going to infringe upon their rights. And that's, when you say the last part, that's where the light goes off my head. That's what it's for. It's for the people to be secure in their homes against the government, number one. Government is public enemy number one. Then you go back and you say, okay, and other people, other non-law-abiding citizens, people that want to break into their home and, and uh, you know, cause harm to the, the family, that would be another big reason to allow them to keep and bear arms. But um, I think that when the Founding Fathers were writing this, that was probably secondary. The, the, pr- the primary reason for them to allow citizens or to make sure citizens had the right to bear arms was to prevent the government from infringing their rights. And so when you look at it from that point of view, um, the statements from our president about, well, you don't go deer hunting with an AR-15, so you don't need an AR-15. What, what does it have to do with hunting? The Second Amendment has zero to do with hunting. It's not talking about going squirrel hunting or deer hunting or any other type of hunting. It's talking about preventing the government from infringing upon our rights. And do I need an AR-15 to prevent the government to infringe upon my rights? Well, if the government has an AR-15, then I absolutely need one. I need anything that the police have that they might be using against me to infringe upon my rights to protect my rights. That's what, if you're looking through just a logical analysis of the Constitution, the biggest enemy that they're looking to protect against is the government. So therefore, the people ought to have the right to protect themselves against it. So Adam, you talked about uh, growing up in Wilcox, Arizona, and it was this kind of a Wild West cowboy town, right? People um, drove around with rifles in, in their back windshield of their pickup truck. I grew up in the same type of setting. I grew up in Sandpoint, Idaho. Sandpoint is about um, 45 minutes north of Coeur d'Alene. Most people have heard of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And so it's about an hour south of the Canadian border. And uh, again, we m- most pickup trucks that were driving around had a gun rack. They might not have had guns in them all the time, but they had gun racks in the back windshield. And uh, it wasn't uncommon to see guns in the gun rack, right? And uh, we also had a very open campus. There was no just one entry into the, the school grounds, whether it's the parking lot and the fields. I can't remember for sure. I think there was only one way in and out of the school itself. Um, but there were no mass shootings at our school, even though... It was kind of a rite of passage when you turned um, 14, I believe it was, to get your um, hunter's education. And that, that way you can go out and go hunting and own a gun and uh, shoot a deer and shoot other animals. We would shoot um, grouse and um, some people who are lucky to draw a moose tag, they would shoot moose. A lot of people would shoot elk. And so, you know, they're carrying around high-powered rifles here. but. There were no incidences where a kid came in and shot up the school. Now, there was violence. Um, I remember when I was an eighth grader and I had just passed this hunter's education course, and uh, a kid killed his mom and attempted to kill uh, her living boyfriend with an axe. And is, is that an arm? Is, yes. Um, he was bearing arm, right? Bearing arms. He had an axe. And uh, nobody 
in the media jumped up and said, hey, we need to start outrule or outlawing these axes, right? He probably pulled the axe out of the stump in the backyard where he'd been chopping wood the night before and uh, went in and, and he created or he uh, committed this heinous act. But uh, the fact of the matter was he was probably being abused and maybe by um, his, his mother's boyfriend and he snapped. And that was the issue. And, and where you left it off was the family is where it comes down to that's where we really need to focus to prevent these types of crimes, to prevent the kids from snapping and going mental and taking these assault rifles and going in and shooting up innocent kids. And I think that's absolutely right because any type of law that we create you're only going to affect law-abiding citizens with it. When you create a law that bans assault rifles, not only do you take those weapons out of the hands of law-abiding citizens, but you create a black market for them. And who shops on the black market? Criminals, right? They're the ones that are going to be the most benefited from these types of laws because not only are law-abiding citizens not going to have the weapons, but the black market is going to make it easier for them to get an untraceable weapon. I think the counter-argument to that is, well, I can't go out and I can't uh, do mass damage with an axe. That's the counter-argument to, to why don't we outlaw axes in the wake of this this killing up in Sandpoint, you know, years ago. And I think the I think the counter argument. I agree with the concept that you're saying. I, I really do agree with it. But my counter argument would be, well, I you can. There's only so much damage you can do with an axe. I can only kill one or two people before I'm going to be taken down by somebody else that has more power than I do uh, using a firearm, probably. And so that's the counter argument to that. But at the same time, the the concept is exactly is the same. Like you said, Sean, I can do a lot of damage with antifreeze. I can slip antifreeze in somebody's food over the course of time. They will pass away, and and I could do that to a lot of people. You know, um, a mass setting. I could I, we could all be together at a dinner, and I could put antifreeze in in something. I'm not going to do that, but I'm I'm just saying I could do that, and that would kill a lot of people. So do we put restrictions on antifreeze uh, there are so many ways that you can do mass harm to other people that would cause uh, if you follow the logic of of uh, the r15 type rifle regulations that are being proposed right now if you follow that logic then th- then we would be essentially regulating all things that have potential to kill and that's basically everything in our lives i mean you can use anything to uh, to create massive destruction or, or damage. And so I don't think that is the answer, like I mentioned before. I think the answer lies in doing better a better job of, of promulgating family values at home. And I think had that happened in, in most of these mass shooting cases, save schizophrenia or other types of, of a, a mental illness that the shooter might have had that really just, it's not really... Um, I guess it is treatable to a certain extent, but but save those types of of shooters, active shooters. I I think most of this can be solved at home or in the community, and I think that's what people aren't talking about because it's messy. It's really messy, and it's a very difficult thing to do. You, it's not a regulation you can put into into. Uh, a a law or a statute in your particular state or in your county or in your city, it's it's more of 
getting the word out and encouraging people to maintain family values at home. But again, I don't want the police coming into my house saying, hey, you're not having dinner every night with your kids. And studies show that uh, if you do that, they're going to turn out better uh, down the road. I don't need the police coming into my house to tell me that. And I don't want them to go into my neighbor's house and tell them that. We just as a community community need to do a better job of promulgating family values and not shying away from calling what it is when we see it and not uh, making excuses. I wrote, I had to write a letter to my son yesterday. And so I'm giving him advice, you know, in this letter. And uh, I, I made mention of the word excuse. And oftentimes my kids will give me excuses. I'll ask them to do something. And they'll come back and it didn't get done or it got done really sloppily. And I get frustrated because I was expecting for that thing or that task to be done. And it's not, or it's done in a way that I'm just going to have to go back behind them and redo it. And when I confront them on it, oftentimes I'll hear an excuse. Well, so-and-so wasn't helping me. I couldn't do it by myself. It was too much. Or the dog did this. Or this happened. It was too windy. Those are just excuses. I asked for you to accomplish a task and it wasn't accomplished or wasn't accomplished in a good, good way. And what you came back to me with was a reason why you chose not to do it. I didn't ask you to, I didn't ask that. I asked you to complete the task or do this, that, or the other. And so when it comes down to this issue of, of a mass shooting and uh, the issue of how do we solve it, really, I think it's an excuse. I think it's an excuse or a, a, let's say a scapegoat to focus on gun regulation or the gun lobbies, as you'll hear in the media. Oh, it's the, if the gun lobbies didn't have so much power, uh, it's not about the gun lobbies. It's about our communities. It's about families. And just say that. Just say, the family failed this kid. And as a consequence to that, his community failed him. Uh, whether that was a local church or he wasn't attending church or his peers didn't recognize or didn't speak up when they saw this kid killing a lot of cats and putting them in a bag uh, or acting weird at work. He worked prior to this and, and a lot of his uh, peers at work, his coworkers said this kid got increasingly more um, secluded and hobbit-like and would make off uh, comments off the cuff and talk about things that that were just disturbing, but nobody said anything. And so nobody's talking about that. Nobody's saying, hey, we had some signs around us. I wish I would have now retro retrospectively, they, they say, oh man, hindsight is 2020 and I should have said something, but now it's too late. But had there been intervention in this kid's life earlier on with a mentor in the community or at school, um, uh, that that would have made all the difference. And it would have made all the difference not only in his life, but in, in the life, lives of these 20 other people that were involved in this community. And, and it's not fun to talk about or to point fingers, but the reality is that is the truth. His fail, his, the failure here was his home. His home failed him, and consequently, those that were around him didn't want to put in the time or effort or volunteer their their effort to mentor this kid. And as a consequence, he went further and further down a pass of path of no return. And uh, he needed help, but nobody was there to help. Have you ever seen that, Sean? In, in our so we deal in our local church. You you deal often with kids um, around. 12 to 18 and I do too in my local church and uh, 
I, I always make it a point or I try to make it a point to know the kids' names and ask them about how they're doing, what's going on in school. I, I want to be a person that they feel comfortable talking to, and if there's an issue in their life, they can tell me. And I'm not going to be. I'm not going to judge them for that. I want to be that person. And I, I've seen firsthand, Sean, that you've done this. We we usually maintain a working staff of at least one or two, what we call student workers in our office. And the the hope is that they learn work experience, but they also uh, real life experience. But they also get a taste of what they of their potential and what they can become by looking at these good examples of coworkers here in our office. And I've seen you take Sean in our office, kids under your wing. And show them, listen, you can be much more than you are, and this is how to do it. So I know you have it in you, and, and you show that as a great example all the time. But have you ever seen a kid in your life around you where you feel like, man, he needs some help. He needs somebody to come in and rally for him. Absolutely. I, I want to talk more about that. we got to take a break here. This is 560 AM KBLU Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the Decent Garner Law Firm. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Sean Garner in studio here with Adam Hansen and Cody Beeson. Adam and I are attorneys that we make a living doing estate planning. We help people preserve their legacy by helping them map out who they trust to make important decisions for them when they can't any longer, and then distribute their assets, their home, their bank accounts, their vehicles when they pass away. Uh, That is something that can't be left to the last minute. It's something that's got to be planned for in advance. And so when you're thinking and and your mind is clear, we want you to come in and we want you to talk to us. We don't charge for consultations. We don't charge to outline an estate plan that will work for you. In fact, if you come in and you sit down with us and we outline an estate plan and you think, well, that's a pretty good plan, but we don't really like you. You could take that plan and go to some other attorney and have it done. But you really need to have a plan in place because I guarantee you don't want the state and the default laws of the state to govern who will make decisions for you when you become incapacitated, who will be the guardian over your children if you pass away, and who gets your stuff after you pass away. So that's an important thing. Why does that make us qualified to talk about gun control? (laughs) It doesn't. Um, But we are American citizens, and that qualifies us, and that qualifies you as well. And I think you need to speak up as well, because the people that speak the loudest are generally the craziest. And uh, that's unfortunate because we see it on both sides of the aisle. We see the crazy people on the left that they're screaming for um, certain restrictions and bans. And I don't know that they represent really their base. I think they represent the outer fringes of their base. And then you have the other people on the right. They're like, you know, um, you can have my guns when you pry it from my dead cold fingers. I don't know that that's the most eloquent way to, to put that. Um, but you could say, hey, the Second Amendment was written by very wise people, the wisest that we've ever seen put together in, in a single room in the history of Earth, and uh, those people put those provisions in the Constitution to help prevent the infringement of our rights by our government. Now, 
are we easily going to give up those rights? I don't think that's a good idea. That might be a better way to phrase the fact that you don't want to give up your right to bear arms. Um, there is a famous quote from Alexis Tocqueville, getting back to where we left off, Adam, with what you were saying, that <clears throat> the real solution is in the home. It's in the family values of each individual. We can't create a law that is going to fix this situation with all these horrible mass shootings. And I in no way think that um, having the Second Amendment justifies somebody going out there and killing any innocent person, let alone innocent children. But the, the solution is deeper and more complex. And Alexander Tocqueville put it uh, very well. He said, I sought for the greatness and the genius of America in her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, and it was not there, in her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there, in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there, in her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. The pulpits, that's where we learn about family values. That's where we learn the Judeo-Christian values that this nation was built upon. That's where we need to look for the answers and, and implement the solutions that are going to stop these mass killings. I agree with that, and and uh, I think you hit it right on the head. I we, we're fortunate enough to have grown up in families where we were regularly going to church on Sundays. Some families do that, some some don't. But I think uh, I think you're exactly right. I think having faith in the home or faith conversations the, that will breed an environment of of uh, um, not so much ex- I wanted to say acceptance but Respect. but tolerance tolerance for other views tolerance for for others and uh, kindness and and all those virtues that we 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 know about as um, let's say biblical virtues that were promulgated by the savior uh, we call them the beatitudes from time to time or or um, those things that you know he said he said uh, do unto others as as you would want done unto you, love one another, those types of virtues uh, need to be continually harped upon in our family units. And it's difficult when you have a mom and dad um, going going at it all the time and uh, not treating their children with, with respect or, or yeah. if they abusing abuse their them. children, mm-hmm. the children are going to become abusers. Yeah, and studies show that as well. And so it starts with the parents, and it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing, and it takes, in my opinion, it takes uh, not only dedication, but it takes uh, consistency. You have to be consistent in the home, and you have to make a choice. Am I going to, once I have these children, am I going to go out and um, do criminal activity and and uh, go cheat on my wife? Am I going to go do this, that, or that, do these things that I know to be wrong uh, just because it makes me feel good or I get a quick thrill, um, even at the consequence of, of abandoning my family or causing harm to my kids, my kids are seeing this and the example that I'm setting, or 
can I abandon all those things, buckle down and be the man or the woman that I need to be in order to help my children understand that it's better to be honest than to lie your way through things. It's better to uh, show kindness when when somebody might treat mistreat you. Uh, it's better to forgive than to return um, an offense. So these are basic values, and it ta- the, the, the thing is, it's hard. It's hard to do. And it's every day. It's a grind. It's, in, it's day in and day out. And es- essentially what I hear you saying is there's a reverence for family, a reverence for human life in general, and also there's an, an absolute reverence for independent choice. But understanding that with choice, with agency, with freedom comes responsibility comes consequences. And if we're not held accountable for our, our actions, just like you were talking about your son not following through with his chores, then we're never going to become responsible citizens. And we're never going to be um, trustworthy or, or merit the trust that we're demanding to have these great rights and these great responsibilities, especially bearing arms. And so, first of all, teach your kids to be responsible with a little bit of agency that they have, and they'll grow up to be responsible adults. So, I guess what we're what we're trying to say is, it's a hard thing, but we know you can do it, and uh, um, we're not perfect by any means, and we try and try and live what we, we preach, but at the same time, uh, you'll find solace in, in doing that which you know to be true, and uh, that's good for us in the community and your family. Um, This has been another episode of Life, Death, and the Law. 560 AM KBLU. We'll talk to you next Monday. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the Deason Garner Law Firm at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.